Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse 37. Then as he was now drawing near to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice, praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these would keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known even especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Of all the prophecies um, in the Bible, um, this study this morning will have to be in the top three. I personally put it as uh, the number one most important prophecy in the entire scriptures. Why? because it gives us all the information one would need to recognize the Messiah when he would come to the very day. We will see a dozen or more prophecies this morning, and the first one we will look at happens to be also in Luke chapter 19. Let's go back to verse 28 of Luke 19. We call this the triumphal entry. And when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he came near to Bethage and Bethany at the mount called Olive that he sent two of his disciples. Uh, Just a little background information here. This would have been the time where he would have been staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus where he would often stay on his way to um, the feasts. And he says, go into the village opposite you and you'll enter and you'll find a colt tied in which no one has ever sat. Loose him and bring him here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosening him? Thus you will say to him, because the Lord has need of him. So those who were sent departed, found it just as he He had said to them, but as they were loosening the colt, the owner of it said to him, why are you loosening the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Now, for some reason, this guy knew ahead of time the Lord might have spoken to him, whatever. Um, He just lets it go at that, doesn't take it any farther. And then they brought him to Jesus and they threw down their own garments on the colt and they set Jesus on him, and he went, and they spread their clothes on the road. Well, in other places it says they also threw palm branches down, thus Palm Sunday. So here will be the first of our 
over a dozen prophecies this morning. Uh, Turn with me to the book of uh, Zechariah, close to the end of the Old Testament, right before the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament. And what we have in Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, is the prophecy itself concerning what we just read in Luke chapter 19. I'm reading verse nine. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, having salvation, lowly, and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, there's at least 400 years separation, 400 years plus, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So 400 years before this event happened, it was foretold exactly how Jesus would be entering Jerusalem. Now, as long as we're here, I want to point out something that I make mention of often, and that is a double prophecy. And in this case, the subject is completely changed, and it goes into the future over 400 years, and now there's a gap between verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 is in reference to the first coming of the Messiah, but verse 10 is a reference to the second coming of the Messiah. It doesn't give any explanation why. Verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations, plural. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. This is what happens when Jesus comes at the second coming. He establishes his kingdom over the entire world. So between verses nine and 10, we have a gap. We're gonna see it again when we get to the book of Daniel between verses 26 and 27. So just something to get used to. Um, And we have this first prophecy uh, being fulfilled um, from Zechariah where Jesus actually rides a donkey, never been ridden before, so there's a miracle there. You don't sit on a donkey that's never been ridden before or you're not on it very long. (laughs) Let's go to the book of Daniel, chapter nine. And there are many prophecies in Daniel chapter nine, but let's set the stage here just a little bit and go to uh, Daniel nine, Verse um, 1 and 2. Remember that Daniel has been in Babylon for the 70 years. Now, yesterday, a men's prayer, we're going through Ezekiel, making mention of the fact that Ezekiel wrote from. Babylon, but Jeremiah wrote from Jerusalem. They were contemporaries, um, and they both had the same message. Don't fight against what I've raised up Nebuchadnezzar to do. 
you're under judgment, you've committed idolatry worse than the nations around you, you're not gonna change my mind, and you're gonna go into captivity, and you're gonna be there for 70 years. Daniel was one of the first to go. So he was 17 when he left. He's been there for 70 years. And now he's reading the book of Jeremiah. And it says in verse one, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years and the desolation of Jerusalem. You know, Daniel's doing this, starting at the year 69. And it's a countdown, you know, they sort of check the calendar days off and now the 70 years, it's over. And so he begins this chapter here by saying, Lord, you said 70 years. I was reading in Jeremiah. I've been here that whole time. It's time to go home. But before the Lord speaks to him, um, Daniel speaks to the Lord. And from verses three all the way through 19 is basically an acknowledgement. God, you were right. We rebelled, we sinned, committed adultery. Everything you said about us is true. And um, he said, I set my face towards the Lord and made requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I would add that he was just very serious um, by the ashes and a sackcloth and fasting. Uh, that he was making, notice it says we in verse five, he is including himself. We have sinned. And the rest of this is David um, just confessing the sins and acknowledging, Lord, you're right, we deserve to be here. Um, you took us to the woodshed and um, now I want to confess that you were right, we were wrong, we deserved what you did. And if you would, I'm not going to read the whole prayer, but one thing that I notice when I read the prayer is um, that it, it seems to intensify in his um, repentance. I'll just read the last verse. He says, O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake. My God, for your city, for your people who are called by your name. And he's just getting into this prayer and all of a sudden it's interrupted. The angel Gabriel cuts him off mid-sentence. And beginning with verse 20, we read, now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sins of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man, actually the angel Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me, and he talked with me, and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill and understanding. What does Daniel want to know? When are we going home? And 
at the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, first of all, that you're greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. Uh, Let me just get sidetracked here a little bit. The first thing that Gabriel tells him is, Daniel, God loves you. And he wanted to make that clear before he goes on and tells him, now I'm gonna give you revelation and information that you're wondering about. What's your point, Dwight? The point is simply that um, we have relationship before revelation. Can I say that again? Many people today are just all caught up in wanting the information. Uh, Sort of like the church of Ephesus. They had all these great things going for them. And the Lord said, forget about it. I'm impressed with that. But you've left your first love. Didn't lose it, you left it. I'm glad you're doing all these other things. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which is setting a hierarchy over the church. He says, I hate that too. Good for you. And, um, but what he was upset with is, even though they were doing all the works, and you can have all the information in the world, but Paul said it's the love of Christ that constrains me to do what I do. If we don't do, at, out of a love for the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 13 says you can sound like a clanging bell or a cymbal. All you're doing is making a lot of noise. He says, but what's really important is your first love relationship. And I find that here. I find that the first thing that Gabriel tells him is, guess what, Daniel? God loves you so much. And then after he said that, because that's number one, good place for an amen, uh, now we can have the revelation. So we have relationship before revelation. You can have all the knowledge in the world. And if the Holy Spirit isn't motivating you to, to speak um, um, from your heart because you love the Lord, um, the revelation is always secondary. So now, verse 24, he begins the revelation. We find um, in this one verse, there, there are six prophecies just by themselves. It says 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. I'm gonna stop right there for a second uh, because what we have here is 77s and what we have is a 490 year period of time by these 70 weeks. Well, where does it say seven, Dwight? It just says weeks. You can turn with me if you want to, otherwise I'm just gonna go back to Genesis chapter 29 and look at verses uh, 27 through 30. The background is Jacob making a deal with Uncle Laban to marry Rachel, who he had fallen in love with. And um, the arrangement was that if he would serve Rachel, um, serve Laban for Rachel, he'd have to do it for seven years. So what does he do? He served Laban for seven years, and uh, Laban, being the trickster that he was, uh, gave him Leah instead of um, 
um, Rachel. And when he woke up in the morning, he found out it wasn't Rachel, it was Leah. So let's pick it up in verse uh, 25. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it must be done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Notice verse 27. Fulfill her week. Well, what was the agreement for? Seven years. So he is associating um, that seven-year period of time with a week. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you served me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. How long? Seven, another seven years. So he gave him his daughter Rachel, his wife also, and Laban gave his maid Bilhah to her daughter Rachel as a maid. And then Jacob went into Rachel, and he loved, he loved also Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years, back to Daniel chapter nine. So when we read in verse 24, 70 weeks, we're talking 70 sevens. Seven times seven is 490 years. Now, what is being said here is what God is going to do with, and this is important that you catch this, for the Jewish people, and Jerusalem in particular. I'm gonna accomplish these things over the next 490 years. What's he gonna do? He's gonna finish the transgression. I'll make mention that some of these are fulfilled and some of these have not yet been fulfilled. That's one prophecy. He will make an end of sins. He will make reconciliation for iniquity. That would be Jesus on the cross. He will bring in everlasting Righteousness, that doesn't happen till the millennium. He will seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So what Gabriel is uh, basically telling um, Daniel, and again, this is only for the Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem in particular, and uh, he is going to accomplish this all and now he's telling Daniel there's going to be a 490 year period of time which brings us to uh, verse 25 he says know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the prince There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, which is 69 weeks when you add them together. The streets will be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. So remember, in Daniel, he's waiting to go home. He's reading Jeremiah, seven years are up. Time to go home, Lord. And now we read that... um, there's gonna be a command that's going to be given. Remember that Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and Jerusalem pretty much lays in waste. It's completely destroyed. 
So Gabriel tells Daniel, when the command comes to rebuild it, what? Jerusalem. There would be, that would be the starting point of the 490 year period of time. You gotta have a starting point if you're gonna have a a time where it's gonna be 490. Well, where do you start from? Well, there's gonna be a command that's going to be given. And when that command is given to go back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding, the clock starts. And at that point, um, in other words, what we find here, in other words, Gabriel is telling Daniel when the Messiah would come. This is incredible. He said, after 69 of those weeks, the Messiah is going to come. And the question is, obviously, well, when was the command given, and where was it given? I'd like you to turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is right after the book of Ezra, and right before the book of Esther in that area, so I'll give you a moment to get there. And while you're turning, I wanna give a little explanation of what is taking place in chapter one. Um, Nehemiah would have been living during the same period of time of Daniel, and um, he is in the city of Shushan, the citadel, and he gets a report Uh, from one of them that had come back from Jerusalem, had escaped concerning the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. Verse three, and they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and the gates are burned with fire. So Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. That's his job. What a great job to have. <laughs> and But yet, he gets this report, and he prays to the Lord, and here he's fasting and praying because his heart is broken. Nothing is happening. Um, and he's basically praying that somehow the Lord would work this thing out. That brings us to chapter 2, where now Nehemiah has to go in, basically a wine taster, you would taste the wine to make sure it wasn't poison, and then you'd give it to the king. The other rule was that you couldn't be sad. Uh, You didn't want to bum out the king. (laughs) You want to make him happy and keep him happy. But on this day, in verse one, it says, it came to pass in the month of Nizan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in the presence before. And the king picked up on the body language. He kicked up that he was downcast, he was bummed out. And therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad? Are you sick? This is nothing to do but sorrow of heart. Then I became dreadfully afraid because that's dangerous. You don't come into the king that way, not with that attitude. And the king said to him, and he said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father, 
um, comes, lies waste, the gates are burned with fire. And the king said to him, all right, what do you want? What's your request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Another little throw in here. Does not the word tell us to be instant in prayer and instant in prayer, not a prayer all times? Pray without ceasing? In other words, we should be talking to the Lord all the time. And now he's put her in a situation, all right, what do you want? So I prayed to the Lord and said to the king, he's got two things going on at the same time. He's in prayer mode. Okay, Lord, he asked me, what do I tell him? Basically what the prayer was. And he says, okay, if it pleases the king and your servant and you have found favor in your sight, I'm gonna ask you to send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tomb, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to him, and it just throws us in a lot of speculation why she's even a part of this conversation. But in parentheses, it says the queen also was sitting beside him. And the king wants to know, well, how long are you gonna be gone for? And when are you gonna return? So I'm sure he's in prayer mode again, and it tells him, gives him a time. And he said, but furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to to Judah. I don't want any hassle along the way. I don't want anybody interrupting my trip. And I also want a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall, for the houses that I will occupy, so he has, he's gonna be there for, I would say, at least a year if he's gonna build a house and live in it. And I will occupy that. And notice, and the king granted them to him according to the good hand of God. And what we have here is a starting point. We have King Artaxerxes giving a command along with letters, along with um, um commands that he can have all the wood that he wants from the forests in Lebanon. And here it is, um, the question, when is it? If this is the starting point. Well, we read in verse one of chapter two, it came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 12th year of King Artaxerxes. And what we have is what I'm gonna do right now. I'm going to read... A couple paragraphs from Sir Robert Anderson. And some of you are saying, who in the world is Sir Robert Anderson? Well, Sir Robert Anderson um, was born May 29th, 1841, until November 15th, 1918. He was a second assistant commissioner of crime on what we would call today Scotland Yard. And from 1888 to 1901, he was also an intelligence officer, a theologian, a prolific writer, including writing more than 20 books on religious topics. His research was extensive, that's an understatement, and the information in his books is thorough. His book, The Coming Prince, gives clear 
documentation of the timing and accuracy of the biblical prophecies of Daniel chapter 9 and can be used as strong, effective, apologetic resource to prove the veracity of the Bible. In other words, he spent a lot of time doing a lot of research coming up with the starting point of when does the 490 years begin. And this is only a couple pages long. I'm going to have a timeline put up on the screen while I give you, I read a couple paragraphs that sort of just puts together his book. The name of his book is called The Coming Prince. The Coming Prince, written by Sir Robert Anderson in 1894, provides the timing of God's dealing with Israel during a final 490-year period. The period begins with the issuing of a decree in 445 B.C. by Artaxerxes uh, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and he quotes Nehemiah 2, verse 5. The period will end with the return of Jesus. However, after 483, or 69 of those weeks, there will be an interruption that will last 2,000 years plus a seven-year period of time known as the tribulation, which we often refer to as Daniel's 70th week. He goes on to say, Anderson in his book provides the exact number of days from the decree of Artaxerxes to Jesus' triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, into Jerusalem, which was prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. The following is a quote from his book, The Coming Prince. The Julian date of that 10th of Nisan was Sunday, April 6th, 32 AD. What then was the length of the period uh, intervening between the, the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the public advent of Messiah the Prince um, between the 14th of March, 445 BC, and the 6th of April, 32 AD. The interval contained exactly to the very day 173,880 days is equivalent to those 69 uh, weeks. Um, The first 69 weeks of Gabriel's prophecy. Now, the first Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the edict to rebuild Jerusalem was March 14th, 445 BC. The 10th of Nisan in Passion Week, Christ enters into Jerusalem, was April 6th, 32 AD. And the intervening period was of 476 years and 24 days, the days being reckoned exclusively as required by the language of the prophecy and in accordance with Jewish practice. Um, This took a lot of research because calendars changed from a 360-day Babylonian year to the 365 years. And I'll just give you a, a little bit of the type of homework he would have had to do to come up with his calculations. Um... 476 times 365 is 173,740 days. 
Now add, 14, add the 14th of March to the 6th of April, uh, both inclusive is 24 days. Add for leap years 116 days, and that equals 173,880 days. And 69 weeks of prophetic years of a 360-day um, calendar, which brings us to exactly from the day this decree was given, you start counting, and you count out 173,880 days, and it brings us to Palm Sunday, to the day. Daniel's prophecy of the triumphal entry of Israel's Messiah was precise to the day. Anderson, through research and clear documentation, supports the accuracy of God's word and his faithfulness to do as he said he would, do it in the exact timing that he said he would. Uh, The same will be true of prophecies yet to be fulfilled, like we read in verse 24, when he brings in righteousness for the whole world. So we can have confidence because this happened that that's going to happen. Everybody tracking with me? Okay, I'm almost done here. Um, Sadly, looking uh, forward, things are never as clearly seen as they were looking backwards. But we can be confident because it's not on our vision that the future hangs. It is on the vision of the one whose omniscience, in other words, all-knowing, knowing all things, and seeing all things from the beginning of time to the end of the world as we know it, and eternity, and in him we trust. Now that was a short little couple paragraphs that gives us the amount of research, leap years, adding days, taking away days, for him to come up with these calculations. Back to Daniel chapter nine. So what is Gabriel, as we look at verse um, 25, we find you can start counting, Daniel, when the decree to rebuild Jerusalem is given. Well, that was given by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah, and the clock starts. And now, in verse 25, we read um, at the end of it that it will be built again and troublesome times, this whole Bible study in itself with um, the heartache that they got from a lot of the people that were discouraging them. Now verse 26a, and after the 62 weeks, or it says Messiah will be cut off. Well, this is an incredible prophecy because it says, but not for himself. The Hebrew there word literally means to be executed. And we're told here not only is the Messiah gonna come on a certain day, but in verse 26 it says when he does come, that he's gonna be executed, but not for himself. When Pilate examined Jesus four times, what did he say? I find no fault in him. Jesus said, don't think I've come to destroy the law. I haven't come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill the law. And uh, that simply means that he never sinned once in thought, word, or deed. He was a spotless, pure lamb of God. So he was being executed, 
not for himself. Even the guys that were hanging on the cross on both sides acknowledged it. Hey, we're guilty. He's not. We are. And so this is prophesied here in Daniel 26. He's going to be executed, but not for himself. So we not only have to the day when he would come, but what would happen to him in his three years of ministry. Now, the next part of verse 26 tells us, and the people of the prince who is to come. Well, this is where um, Sir Robert Anderson gets the name for his book, The Prince Who Is to Come. And the people so of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. This is talking about the Romans. 38 years later from Palm Sunday, Jesus refers to it, we'll go back to it in a little bit, are going to come and destroy Jerusalem. But it mentions here, and the people of the prince, notice it's future tense, who is to come. That means he's not there yet. So they're from this Roman Empire. We find someone who is referred to here as the prince. And then it says, this group of people, looking back on history, we know it was the Romans in 70 AD that did this. They did destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end of it will be with a flood till the end of war desolations are determined. Stop, pause, and now we have another gap. Just like we had in Zechariah between verses 9 and 10. Now we're in Daniel between verses 26 and 27. And we have a gap of over 2,000 years. And we read here, then he, the he is a reference to when you go back to verse 26, the prince who is to come. That's the he here. The he is the prince who is to come. He will confirm a covenant with many for what? One week. We will never know who the Antichrist is because he's gonna make a peace treaty. With who? With Israel, a covenant. And it's gonna be for a seven-year period of time. That's why we call this Daniel's 70th week. And we call the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the great indignation. We also call it primarily Daniel's 70th week. So, again, I want you to be comfortable with the transition. When I say, okay, here's a gap of 2,000 years. It's not explained. It just says the prince who is to come is going to make this arrangement for one week, for a seven-year period of time. And then he says, in the middle of the week, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now, the Lord himself makes reference to this verse in Matthew 24. He's, the question is, Lord, when are you coming? And what's it gonna be like? And he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, and then in parentheses it says, that which Daniel spoke, and whosoever let him understand. In other words, you gotta be a very serious Bible student. You gotta get into the word. Um, no Bible prophecy, know how to connect the dots. And so what we're being told 
here is between verse 26 and 27 that there's um, going to be a peace treaty that is signed, a covenant, but he's going to break it. If you're taking notes, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, you don't have to turn to it. It says that when the man of sin comes, what does he do? He goes into the temple and he declares himself to be God. When does this happen? In the middle of the tribulation. It's called the abomination of desolation. And here's the first place that it's made reference to. Let's get sidetracked here just a little bit. We find this peace treaty. Uh, It will be a time of world turmoil when the world will be looking for a world leader that could unite the world in world peace. We know, I've been preaching it for over 40 years, that the Bible tells us that there's coming a one world government, a one world currency, and a one world religion. And we've known that. We just haven't known how it's going to unfold. Might I pause and say, I'm watching it unfold? And you're watching it unfold right now? As we see our economy going down, we see the globalists having one desire, and they will do anything and everything to bring about globalism. There is a depopulation movement going on. We're talking in the, in the prayer room in the back here, just the price of rent going up just in the last year. The price of food, they tell me paying six bucks a gallon for, for a gallon of milk and, and the thing of it is it's only get worse and worse and worse. And um, um, there's so much going on that I can't get sidetracked on right now, but know that the globalist will do anything at any expense to bring this about. And this whole thing with Russia and Ukraine might be just a smokescreen compared to what they're really planning on doing and how it ties into what's going on in um, the Middle East. All right, this is free. This isn't in my notes. We got sidetracked at Ben's Prayer yesterday. And um, it says when the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war happens, it gives reason. Saudi Arabia comes up with a question. What are you guys doing? What are you Russians doing? What are you doing out here? Have you come to take a spoil? And then it mentions and silver and gold. Well, just this week in my research, um, somebody came up with um, something that I'm familiar with. Uh, it's called... The Dead Sea Scrolls are uh, in Qumran. Is everybody familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls? All of the Bibles, parchments, every, every book, we have pieces of it, except one, and that's the book of Esther. Uh, the reason the book of Esther is not in there is because God, the name God, never appears in the book of Esther. So the scribes never wrote the book of Esther. There was one exception. There was one scroll that was called the Copper Scroll. That one is in Amman, Jordan. I was in Amman. I didn't get to see it, but I've done research on it. 
And basically it's different and kept intact. And basically what it is, is a treasure map that has led to a lot of speculation. And they're deciphering it right now. And this is just one man's hypothesis, not mine, but I found it extremely interesting. The amount of gold that came into Solomon before they destroyed the temple, the only other place you'll find 666 in the Bible is that is the amount of talents of gold that came into Solomon every year. Do the math. And then they begin to list off all the gold that Solomon had and all the utensils. And the guy, it was just thick of things that were made out of solid gold. The Bible said Solomon made silver like stones in Jerusalem. And the bottom line, when you do the math of a talent times 666, he reigned for 40 years and he has everything made out of gold. And what they believe is being deciphered right now, even as we speak, is where all this gold is. And as they tallied it up, it's into the trillions and trillions and trillions, and even went as far as to say a million trillions of dollars worth of gold. Now, would that be an incentive to bring an attack upon Israel if that was ever found and brought out? And one of the reasons that they might not only want to come to take the land, the Golan, I just read this morning that um, whether Israel likes it or not, that um, Assad has taken the northern part of the Golan Heights. He's just taken it. Polkadot Israel. Um, the other commodity besides gold and, and the natural gas that Israel has is just imagine if they actually found this treasure. Uh, millions of trillions? And why are you coming down to take a spoil? And it actually says gold as being one of the commodities. Okay, that was all free. <laughs> Do with it what you want to. Be a Brian. Google it. Uh, see what you can come up with. Um, but uh, Google a cop copper scroll this is would be Qumran is on the very northern tip of the Dead Sea I've been there many many times we always stop and um, show the people that the the Essenes these were the ones that left Jerusalem and went down uh, to the Dead Sea Uh, they're extremely religious and basically their whole life was just writing the word of God over and over and over again all right you'll find this interesting So we know there's going to be a one-world government, one-world currency, and a one-world religion. Everybody here knows that Biden has already asked for legislation, asking for our own personal Bitcoin. And he wants it implemented by the end of this year, um, which would make your dollar worth absolutely nothing. And I know you're sort of hearing these things, but I'm bringing them up for a reason. Because I believe the stage is set and the hour is so late that the Lord actually could come before the end of this Bible study. Wouldn't that be great? Even so, come Lord Jesus. I'm tired of the whole thing. I'm vexed on a daily basis when I hear some of the things that are, what people are going through. I mean, we know the Lord and we can hang on that and we have a hope 
We're not appointed to wrath, but that's what's coming. And um, the Ezekiel 38-39 war is right on the corner. Now, in 1956, there was a man named Paul Henry Spock. I don't think he was related to the Spock, but um, in 1956, he was part of the European uh, involvement with NATO. And I'm quoting him right now. So this goes back quite a ways. So I'm quoting. um, He says, we do not want another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all people and to lift us out of this economic morass into which we are sinking. Send us such a man. Be he God or be he devil, we will receive him. 1956. Looking for somebody who can bring some sort of order to all the disorder. I'd like to get sidetracked and just tell you what happened between Russia and Germany right now, but you guys are going to have to do your own homework on it. That's too much of a sidetrack for me. Before we go back to Luke chapter 8, uh, 19, we're going to stop at Psalm 118. So let's turn to Psalm 118, which is another prophecy fulfilled on this day. As you're turning to Psalm 118, let me tell you that there are different types of Psalms, at least six. Uh, one of them, of course, is like Psalm 150, um, songs of praise and worship. Then there's psalms of creation, there's psalms of exodus, there are psalms that deal with penance and repentance, there are songs of pilgrimage, and then there's messianic psalms, like Psalm 22. Psalm 118, where we are right now, is a messianic psalm. In other words, it's about Jesus. And we read here in verse 22 of Psalm 118, it says the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. This is the day. I'm going to stop and pause and make you think on that a a while. This is the day which the Lord has made. We're going to rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now let's go back to our text in Luke chapter 19 and read uh, verses 38, 37. Then the whole drawing near to the Mount of Olives, a whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And what did they do? They quote Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So the crowd is acknowledging the Psalms that when the Messiah comes, um, this would be quoted. Now, not only did the people 
believed that Jesus was the Messiah and are saying so by quoting Psalm 118, but the Pharisees also were aware of it and it ticks them off. So we read in verse 39, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd saying, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Well, why would they want him to be rebuked? They were thinking, hey, these people here think you're the Messiah. <laughs> They're quoting Psalm 118, rebuke them. And the Lord says, can't do it. He goes on and answers and says, I tell you that if these uh, should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Somebody was gonna be worshiping the Lord that day, and if these people didn't do it, then creation would, but it's prophesied. Question, if something is prophesied in the word of God, is there anything that can stop it from not happening? Answer to that is an emphatic no. If it's foretold, it must be fulfilled. Jesus said to the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T, a jot and a tittle, it's gotta happen. And the Pharisees are saying, they can't say that. He says, they have to. It's prophesied. On this day, it's gotta happen. Remember, this thy day, Psalm 118. And um, going ahead to verse 41, it tells us, uh, uh, and as he drew near the city, he wept over it. This is one of two times Jesus would have wept. Um, he wept over the death of Lazarus, and he weeps here over, the, over Jerusalem. Well, why is he weeping? Because he knows what's going to happen. He knows they're not gonna receive him. And then he said, he's weeping while he's saying this. Oh, if, you, if I would put emotion into this statement. Oh, if you had only known, even especially in this your day. He's referring to a specific day, one that was prophesied by Daniel, where the Lord said in Matthew 24, whosoever reads, let him understand. They should have been looking. The things which make for your peace. I'm your Messiah, I've come, but you're gonna reject me. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. Well, Daniel said exactly the same thing. This day, according to Daniel, as we read in um, Nehemiah, was 483 years, 69 weeks, or 173,880 days foretold by Daniel. And so when we read this, your day, it is April 6th, 32 AD, to the day. Oh, if you'd only known that this was your day, but you missed it, and now he prophesies, and he goes on and he's gonna explain to them the consequences for them not reading their Bible. Your enemies will come and build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side, Level you and your children within you to the ground. Not one stone will be left upon another. Um, this happened um, 38 years later in 70 AD. As, as Daniel said in Daniel 9, 26, the people of the prince who will come will destroy the, the temple. Now Jesus is prophesying it here. 
exactly 38 years later, that's exactly what happened. But it gives us the reason that it happened. Because, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Question, what's the implication here? The implication is, because you did not know implying what? You should have known. You should have been looking at Psalm 118. You should have known Daniel chapter nine. You should have known that the day it happens, he would be coming riding a donkey down the Mount of Olives. All of these things were in play. And yet, some of them understood. And um, um, that pretty much right here is the reason for the destruction of Jerusalem because they did not know the time that they should have known. My friends, do you know how much of a in a minority you are in knowing the things that we know from a biblical perspective? And let me just say, if you're watching anything on any of the networks, you can expect just the opposite to be true and what's going on right now. And, um, and how this is, they're all part of a conglomeration of the globalist six companies own every one of the um, TV stations, ABC, NBC, CBS, even Fox, sometimes they do a pretty good job. But uh, overall, what you see is um, propaganda uh, with the intent and purpose of them setting up this one world global system. They have their motive. But let me tell you what's really going on. Who's behind all that? A God in heaven who's sovereign, who's allowing these things to take place. They can't do this without the Lord being involved no more than, than uh, Jerusalem could be destroyed by using a Gentile king named Nebuchadnezzar. And what was the words? Don't fight against it. You've gone too far. Some people that I listen to that are Christians uh, and talk about what's going happening, they actually think that things are gonna come back to normal. They know just enough about the Bible to be dangerous, okay? And they say, we're gonna get through all this, all you gotta do is prep a lot. By the way, I'm not against prepping. I think you should be somewhat prepared for what's coming down the line. At least buy food while it's cheap and stock it up. We are. Um, but um, my hope is that we're out of here soon as we see all these things falling into place, just like, like a puzzle. But no, behind it all, there's spiritual warfare going on like never before. Like never before. I've never seen it in all my Christian life. I've never seen spiritual warfare that's going on right now. The evil, the complete lack of concern, human emotion, um, that I see taking place, it doesn't matter to the globalists as long as they can bring about what they think is, is gonna happen. No, what's gonna happen is the book of Revelation. And there will be three and a half years of somewhat peace of, with the covenant that's gonna be made. But after that, um, the Antichrist is assassinated, come back to life. I believe he's possessed by the devil himself. And one What's the one thing that Satan has always wanted above everything else? Jesus, if you'll get down and worship me, you won't have to go to the cross. Worship. He wanted to be like the most high. Instead, he was cast down. Has he given up 
That dream? No. What, how was he described? He has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And there's absolutely no emotion except to get that and him being the one that's worshipped. Well, he'll have his time for three and a half years and then the Lord will say, all right, that's enough, move aside. Zechariah 9, verse 10 is about to be fulfilled and I'm gonna destroy you and I'm gonna set up my kingdom and after that it's gonna go on forever and ever and ever and ever. Where are you in all this? Well, the Bible says you're gonna rule and reign with him. Now, that's the bright side of the story, but it doesn't mean that we aren't gonna go through some storms before that. Good place for an amen. We will not know who the Antichrist is. We will, people will only know who the Antichrist is when he writes that covenant with Israel. And you go, that's him. And so as we look at this, it is, um, uh, we begin to close this thing up. I want to go to Luke chapter 20. And um, <laughs> let's just say it's not good to play mind games with the creator of the mind. Because the Lord is going to turn the tables on these Pharisees um, in, in this particular parable. I told the better men's prayer yesterday that I was going to make mention of this this morning. <clears throat> Because Ezekiel, when we were reading, was a true prophet, but we were also reading about the false prophets. So there were true prophets and false prophets. And I said, well, I'll actually be talking about this this morning. So in chapter 20, picking up in verse 9, we have the parable of the vineyard owners. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. That terminology was actually used when we were reading in Ezekiel yesterday, um, vine dressers and vineyard. And he says, at the vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. The, but the uh, uh, vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Well, that's what they did to Jeremiah. They threw him down into the mire. Didn't want to hear a word he had to say. It was all negative. And again, he sent another servant. All right, how about Ezekiel? And they beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. So this is a reference to the prophets. I sent you the prophets, and I told through the prophets what was going to happen, but you didn't want to hear And again, he said a third, and they wounded him and cast him out also. So then the owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. Now this is a reference, of course, to Jesus. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves saying, this is the heir, come, let's kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, these false prophets wanted to kill Jesus. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Well, he will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. 
And this is basically what happened and why we have a gap between the 69th and the 70th week. So Israel was temporarily put on a shelf and we're living in what we call now the church age. It had a beginning, Pentecost. Remember, 3,000 got saved. It has an ending. It's called the rapture, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Another implication there. Beginning with Pentecost, church age, ending with the rapture, the very next verse then begins to talk about Israel again. And uh, then all of Israel will be saved. So is everybody following me? We have the 69 years fulfilled. Clock stops. Church age comes in. He gives it to others. But then after the rapture, he goes back because he still has a promise to keep his word that he owes Israel seven more years. Isn't it interesting that the tribulation is a seven-year period of time? Not eight, not six, but seven. And... um, you can know for certainty it's going to happen. So then he goes on to say, and look at this is what is written. And what does he do? He quotes Psalm 118 to them. <laughs> they were upset with it before. He said, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And he's speaking it to them. They say, certainly not. Um, well, then he says, well, then what's, what's Psalm 118 all about? You rejected me. The stone which the builders rejected, they were the builders, has become the chief cornerstone. It's a reference to Jesus Christ. As we close this thing up this morning, I'm gonna look at verse 18, which tells us that every person Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. Okay, this is referring to a brokenness. The Lord said, I will not hide myself from a person who has a broken and a contrite spirit or a humble spirit. Well, how do you get that humble spirit? Well, ask Isaiah. When he was in the presence of the Lord, he went, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. God is pretty holy and I'm pretty much a sinner. Oh, woe is me, I'm undone. Another way of saying that is he was being broken because he was acknowledging the holiness of a holy God. Same thing here. Whoever falls on the stone, well, who's a stone? Jesus, who did he claim to be? The son of God. What did he come for? To die for you because he loves you so much? That's one possible relationship you can have with him. Now this applies to everybody worldwide. The other alternative would be, but on whomever it falls. In other words, the stone fell. Makes me think of Daniel 2. Remember the stone that came out of nowhere and hit the image of the beast and it scattered and destroyed all those kingdoms? That's what we have here. All the kingdoms that have ever existed are going to, that have rejected Uh, the Messiah will be ground to powder and that's exactly what happened to um, these other nations. So as we close this thing up, the Lord put this on my heart this week. Number one, it's late. Um, If you are broken and repent, you'll be fine. 
and you can buy a t-shirt that says the end is near and I feel fine. All true, both are the same statement. That could be part of your relationship or you can say I don't buy any of that Bible stuff, don't believe any of it, don't care about it, I'm gonna do my own thing and the Lord says to that person, that stone's gonna fall on him and grind him to powder. Now, we should be concerned not so much with ourselves, but with people that don't know the Lord, that you have an opportunity to witness. I want you to open your bulletins, and I want you to take out this piece of paper that says, The Roman Road. And this is how we're gonna close things up this morning. The Roman Road is one of the best known tracks and best laid out tracks for a person to come to know Jesus Christ. I'm only gonna read it this morning, but I want you to know the reason that it's in there. Matter of fact, it's gonna be in every bulletin every week until the Lord comes back. Why? Because I want you to take it home with you. You can leave your bulletin here, but I want you to take this home with you. And I want you to give it to somebody. Yeah, well, I feel uncomfortable about doing that, Dwight. Uh, You'd feel more uncomfortable uh, knowing that they weren't saved and ended up in hell when you had an opportunity to share with them. Um, What did Paul say? I'm a fool. You know the song, Everybody's Somebody's Fool? (laughs) Well, Paul was a fool for Christ. And he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So even if you say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism, do you have the gift of being able to hand out a piece of paper? Could I just give this to you and you can do with it what you want to? Well, what is it? Well, it tells a person how they can have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm gonna read it this morning in closing, but I want you to know, and I'm asking you to as your pastor, to from now on, take it home with you, even if you get a little pile stacked up. Um, And uh, you'll always be equipped. What's the first one say, Romans 3.10? As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. You can tell them, I'm no better than you are. See, we're all sinners. Number two, Romans 3.23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6.23, now the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus and shalt believe in thy heart, God has raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved, for with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And whosoever, Romans 10, shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Might I follow it up with this? The Lord says, my word will never return void. And if they read it, then pray, Lord, Make this be like a broken record that plays over and over and over again until they come around. You never know what 
It's going to happen in any given day that's going to cause a person to be open. I believe in divine appointments. And I believe if you're equipped and you're carrying these around in your car or whatever, that you have an opportunity to say, could I give you this? And uh, what is it? Well, it's, it's about Jesus Christ. And if they might blow you off and they might not. And they might say, thank you very much. I'll take it home and, and read it. Um, with that, as I began to study, I told you this is one of the most, in my opinion, incredible prophecies in the Bible because it tells us to the very day. Here we are, Palm Sunday, 2022. And I mean this in closing. I don't believe we're gonna be here 2023. Personal opinion. But that's how late I think things are right now. And we have opportunities to be light and salt, and we should do it while we can. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close in our prayer. Lord, we, we thank you for the accuracy of your word, your purposes and your plans. And Lord, let us take us to heart that even though by your grace we've received this great gift of eternal life, and we're so grateful, Lord. But because of the times that in which we live, we thank you for gospel tracts and God of wonders and seeking and finding God, materials like that. But in closing, we, we pray for our loved ones. And Lord, we pray for whatever it takes to bring them to you, uh, that you would create those divine appointments and that you would work in such a way to prepare their heart um, to simply read this simple track called Roman Road of Salvation. Uh, we thank you that uh, you've given it to us. And we pray, Lord, that you go before the rest of our day. In Jesus' name I pray. All God's people said, amen.